Welcome to this new issue of the podcast. Today I have a very special guest from the place where I have been living since more than 5 years. I have Bruno Wildhaber who is a Swiss doctor, writer, public talker and a coach. He has written and published different books in German and English where a deeper spiritual message is very deeply rooted in each of his book chapters that is why we felt immediately connected even though our paths have been completely different bruno is a very aware being who sees through the state of a person he also has gone through a lot of battles himself awakening from the manipulations of all the structures of the society like schools politics and families beyond his own path of growth he has also worked on other people's pain having a deep knowledge about the functioning of the psychosomatic organism bruno has also helped a lot of people in physical and psychological areas guiding them beyond the medical treatment into searching and looking at the very root problem of the pain and not just remaining in the surface of a technical temporary relief we would like to know more about him through this interview as he is a great inspiration so bruno welcome to this podcast my first question to you is that uh, which background do you think led you to help so many people and later in life express your inner wisdom through writing such inspiring books my own pain <laughs> i was um i had a um an illness as a child i was um inoculated and and contracted polio from a vaccination and uh i am in pain pretty much every day of my life When I was 22 years old I um traveled to America and, and met a practitioner there that worked on me and for the first time in my life I was had moments when I was pain free and um I realized I needed to know what this man knows and that led me to um to explore the possibility that I could actually go to college and uh universities and get a higher degree that's what i did when i looked into it it was it meant that i it, it would have it would take me 10 years to do that i was um 21 22 at a time and that would mean that i would be in college until i was 32 years old i already had a a, a job lined up as a computer programmer here in switzerland and uh and uh, as it's in so many ways you know a, a question uh gave me the answer to to my future path and the question was is it possible that if i go back to switzerland and uh, have a career in computer science and computer technology and i turn 32 in 10 years that i would look back and say i should have gone that other route 
That was the question, and the answer was uh, an immediate yes, it could be. So that was the answer for me. That was good enough, and I dropped Switzerland and stayed there. And uh, 10 years later, I uh, graduated uh, with a doctorate in uh, chiropractic. So in some way, we can say that pain actually became your creative tool right. to move yeah. in that direction. <clears throat> well, as we know, uh, the light can only uh, enter you through your scars, through your pain. So I think here we are. It's interesting because you know most of the time in our society, we are taught to run away from the pain or to do something about it, but to get rid of it. And very few people can embrace yeah. it and use it in a creative way to give birth to something useful or profound. Yeah. Well, that's, there is value in suffering. That's a, that's a sentence that reoccurred in my line of work and in my world a lot because I became a master for the physical body. So you can um, literally give me anything. It doesn't matter what it is. I can make it better. Because all I do is I apply um, uh, natural laws, if you will. I reduce the, um, the communication issues between the brain and the body. That's really all I do mm-hmm. on so many levels, on different levels. But it, it, in the end, it's always reducing in interference within the body so that the brain can communicate with the body and tell the body what to do and the body can give feedback to the brain how it is and and so on forth so forth and um, the self-healing mechanism is then properly turned on and i have seen miracles so in your profession that you've been working on patients from a perspective of psychosomatic healing as we understand and we understand that you helped hundreds of people in this way. So what was your experience working with people and helping them? And what led you to eventually stop that? Um, as I said, you know, I, I was taught and I, I only had the avenue at that time about the physical body. I wanted to understand how can I optimize the physical body to the, pain, to the point where pain is no longer uh, an interference in somebody's life. So I did that. And um, when I started my practice, it was so successful that I burned out in a very, very short period of time. Because what showed up on my doorsteps were people who went through all the modalities that are available, the orthodox medical model, they tried pretty much anything and they were told we can operate or you have to live with it. And these are the people that found their way to me because, you know, my approach was different. I was not asking anybody, where does it hurt or why are you here? I was just uh, objectively looking for interference between the brain and the body. When I found it, I reduced it, and the self-failing mechanism did the rest. So I was not necessarily um, a healer. Most people wanted me to be the healer, but I always emphasized, you know, it's the body that heals itself. All I can do is I can um, manipulate or, like, you know, do things to the body to um, assure proper communication between the brain and the body, and vice versa. And... 
it became so successful that I was I was run run over by patients. I was all of a sudden I had no time for anything anymore, and and uh, when it um, was clear that I needed to stop all of that, you know, was one of the reasons was the, my realization that the human animal is a psychosomatic being. In other words, we experience things in our body, but all of it begins in the psyche. Even pain and suffering, most always, you can trace it back to the mind. According to you, what would be that ratio? The ratio, like, what is the psychological portion versus the physical portion? I would, I would go as far as to say nearly 100%. Nearly 100%. So 100% issues in the psyche which are reflecting on the physical level. Psychosomatic issues are issues that manifest in, this, in the soma. Soma means body, but have their origin in the psyche. There are also somato-psychic issues. So in other words, you, um, you like to run to diffuse a lot of your stress and you have a problem in your body and your knee, let's say, and you cannot run. And as a result of that, you get, you get depressed. That would be, it begins in the body and has an effect on the psyche, so somato-psychic. There's somato-somato and psycho-psychic. So there's just a word play. The word play psychosomatic just um, refers to something happens in the mind that over time, it can be very quick or it can be something that is so latent, so, so far removed that you're not realizing that it has its origin in the psyche. But my experience in my practice was so strong that we are psychosomatic beings, period, that I had to um, make the decision to stop practicing. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, you know, to stop my practice because I had such a huge passion for my profession and for, um, for what I was doing. And so I left in 2000. I mean, I, I only worked for five years. I mean, I studied for 10 and worked for five. So... Not a good ratio, if you will. But um, I left and went back to uh, the roots, essentially, and I started taking apart the psyche, which I started already during the practice time. I created a whole setup, like a, psych a psychological profiling system, if you will, for me. Um, but it was very rudimentary, very, very um, rough, if you will. But that's when it started. And then when I stopped working or practicing, I uh, dedicated my time to map out the human psyche. Uh, it's a funny story. I went to, I actually wanted to do this in Switzerland. I wanted to study psychology. But the Swiss system is a funny system, and I was not able to um, matriculate into the uh, university in Zurich to study that because I didn't have French, uh, and I didn't have, uh, I think it was uh, Swiss geography in my maturation process, process that I did in America. So uh, when I uh, um, asked them, it's like, well, it's un about that. I said, well, it's understandable that with the French because most of the texts in this program must be French. And they told me, no, 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 everything is in English. So when I then uh, continued in English, my conversation with that person, the person that actually didn't let me register into the program 
couldn't follow me in her English. So, <laughs> so it was kind of a funny thing. And that's one of, one of the reasons why I said, you know, so I left Switzerland at that time and went back to uh, America, to California and did that there. But I didn't, I, and, I, and I made a decision not to go back into a university and get another doctorate degree, if you will, because that's what it would have um, probably ended up being. I wanted to do it in, in self-studies. So I, I went to universities, colleges, and workshops, and wherever, whatever I needed in order to fulfill the picture. I had puzzle pieces, and I needed to the, the different puzzle pieces to create that picture that gave me the, uh, the security of understanding the psyche in order to eliminate the psychosomatic premature degeneration. And um, so I gathered all these pieces in, in a self-study, which took about as long as it would have taken me to get a second doctorate degree. Hmm. You know, it was about the same time. Was like, so, but I didn't want to have the official document in the wall. I wanted to have an opportunity to be able to share with people that you can teach yourself in self-studies without having a diploma on the wall. Of course, that's not very popular here in Switzerland, but in the end, you know, nobody ever asked me about my doctorate degree. Never once. If you show up with the proper knowledge and you can actually um, fill in a gap that, that people experience, you'll be, you'll, you'll be okay, you know, you'll be okay. Truth is which works. Well, yeah, you know, I, I now have the unique possibility to actually uh, compare Because I did the official studies with all the diplomas, la, 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 in a university setting. And I have done the other part in self-studies, where I studied something that is equally important, which is the human psyche. And I can now compare the two. And I have to say which is more streamlined, which is more um, easier on you, without a doubt, is the self-study. It's the only thing that you have to get over is the, the neurosis of having to have a certificate on the wall. Mm. If that is the thing that you must have in order to give yourself permission to practice a given modality, well, in my, in my professional opinion, uh, whoever goes that path has an issue, has a problem, and we should address it. That's something that I would address with somebody. <laughs> Because you don't need it. You, don't, you really do not need that certificate. You need the knowledge. You need the seriousness inside of you and the knowledge. Um, and then be honest with where your limits are. And don't teach something or don't practice something that you are not a master of. You have to master it first. To maybe add something to, um, to comparing the self-study and the official path that uh, is still in most people's mind, the only path is there comes a moment. Let's say you begin the regular process. You go to a college, you go to a university, and you begin the, you take the classes and you do give yourself into this program. There comes a moment where things come together. In other words, like your past experiences, what the new things you learn and the things that you project into your p personal future, all of it becomes like it amalgamates. It, it comes together and it, it forms something new that gives you a feeling of being on the right path or being on 
on a path that is not really for you. And I think, you know, these moments, they're often, they're brushed aside because you're busy doing homework, you have a, you have a, a love life, you have a personal, yeah, all these different things, you have to make money. They, they, all this is sidetracking you away from a feeling that actually be, tries to tell you, um, change directions. And that's one thing that I've, I've found in this uh, the official way of studying something, you are so you're kept so busy that these voices that only ever whisper that tell you just move away from this, go go in a new path. These voices only whisper, and I found myself to be so busy that there is absolutely no way that an uninitiated person which most people are in that regard will hear the voice and as a result of that they're keeping on a path and they're being taught things that we already know university used used to be or that the original idea of course is to to give you base on understanding but then let you explore new things which is of course uh, sacrilege you know within the <laughs> within the realm of universities, you know. So it's um it's interesting. That's yeah. to say the least. It's a very interesting I think also on a on a spiritual journey, the whole learning is to come to a point where you start listening to the inner voice. Mm-hmm. In our culture we call it the Sadguru. In uh, the Indian tradition we understand that an outer guru, if he's a real guru, then he or she slowly, slowly brings you to that point where you start listening to the inner guru. Because outer guru is not interested that you remain dependent on him or her all your life. He actually wants to be free of you. So he or she makes that effort to bring the disciple to the point where what you are calling the inner voice. So in that context, because now we are talking about the guru. So for you, what is a guru and what role did it have in your life? Or may I ask, in which way did you find a guru? In India, we have an outer guru, which is, as I was saying, which is a wise one, and then an inner guru. So can you say that in your life you were guided a lot by your inner guru? Guru to me, you know, the, the word guru is, is, to me, is nothing other than teacher. That, that's my in personal interpretation. It teaches me something. Uh, and mainly it's um, from not knowing to a place of knowing, understanding from the dark into the light, if you will. You know, that's what that means to me, unfortunately. And that's something that is very, it, it saddens me in a, in a big way, other that the word guru has such a negative charge here in the, in the realm that we exist right now in Switzerland. It's the ignorance of people is, in that regard, is huge. It's just unreal. It's, it's, it's a shame. It really is. It's a shame. Why do you think that's the case? 
Well, it's yeah, it's I think it's part of the the programming here, you know, because a guru can, if done properly, can move you from a place of ignorance into a place onto a place of understanding and enlightenment on little things and they can also be big things you know and uh anything that moves you away from this uh, eight to five productive consumerism is a threat and as a result of that will be um will be uh nullified if possible and that you know has uh, here i mean people are very smart here they are very very um they're very in tune you know there's a, a realm of people here that are very very sharp uh and these people you cannot tell them uh this is bad and they just take it you have to explain it or you have to do something so often the focus is on let's say a guru has a following of thousands then it's not a movement of higher understanding if you will it is now a cult it becomes a cult so the guru is now a cult leader but once we take that word apart you know the word cult we all live in a cult that the word culture comes from the word cult i mean so here it is you know please so inner and outer gurus outer gurus in the western world the way i have you know exposed myself to all these knowledge out there the outer gurus i called mentors my mentors i had many mentors i never had a spiritual guru that never had that i was uh, i was admiring certain things about spiritual leaders but i never became a devotee of a guru i never that was just not in my cards so far you know but i was always looking for a teacher always i'm a lifelong learner and if you open a path where i can learn something about myself about the human condition about anything I'm, i'm right there for you i was guided and now the inner guru maybe the inner guru for me i was guided through my dreams i had um i mean i had a horrible childhood really i mean it was it was just nothing nothing really uh, harmonious if you will the only time that i had harmony within my uh, childhood when i was um, isolated alone on my own in in the forest running around and playing that, that was the only time that i had peace i was always it, it really started very early when i had a, a nightmare Every single night I had the same nightmare. And without going into the story of this nightmare, at one point I I took an inventory of my life. I was seven years old. I remember that. I remember where I was. I, I know exactly how it happened. And the inventory was um, all these people, all these adults in my life. They were teachers. They were my parents. They were a couple of neighbors, you know. And I kind of like ask myself, so what... What do they, what, what, how do I feel around them? How do I feel around my teacher? And I realized as well, very negative, that's very and terrible. I just don't feel good at all. Parents, the same thing, neighbors, the same. It was like all the adults around my life were, for me, energy sources that, that were very negative. Very negative. That nothing, there was nothing positive that I could say. It's like, I love this moment, I love that person, I love nothing. I just didn't have that. 
And I, I remember, you know, like it was yesterday, I was like, I've realized and said, okay, good. Well, then I must just not listen to them. I just have to stop listening to what they're saying because they are not good for me. They're not. And I was really, I remember, I was very honest. I try, really tried to find positive things, but I was just not able to see it. So from that moment on, I didn't listen to any adult. You could tell me whatever you wanted to tell me. It went in on one ear, out the other. I was not, I was not believing you. Nothing. It was just that way. School system. I went through the school system here in Switzerland with the worst, worst um, grades that you can possibly imagine because I never did homework. I never uh, participated. The only thing I participated was sports because that was fun to me. And that was it. I was the most, the worst um, students that you can possibly imagine. What I did have was street smarts. I was very uh, quick. I was a quick learner. And one of the reasons was um, most likely was a training that I had to do uh, during childhood. I had to lie a lot. I lied a lot. Because I had to keep everybody um, busy, keep everybody quiet, you know, um, happy, and I couldn't share a lot of things that happened with me. And I, so I had to lie a lot, and I had to remember the lies. And retrospectively speaking, you know, I came to a point in my life when I realized, like, wow, it's like it doesn't matter if I tell, if I completely tell the truth, because nobody cares. So I might as well not have to remember all these half-truths and lies that I kind of placed with you, with you. But in retrospect, I, I think that was kind of almost like a training my mind to remember well. I, I, it's kind of bizarre. Maybe it's very strange, but um, I, I always find it amusing when I think back on how dishonest I was about things that I didn't have to be dishonest. But it was just, it was just a, an omni present thing that I had to do in order to survive. It, otherwise, it was very physically brutal, you know, and I had to... So, but um, uh, it's never too late to have a great childhood. So it, I had incredible mentors back then, physical mentors, like the teacher. He was a perfect mentor. How not to teach, how not to be with children. My parents, my father, my mother, you know, they, I, they were... They, my mother, until the last breath she took, she kept the role you know, up. And I, you know, 20 years before her death, I, you know, I had a talk with her where I told her, I get it, I got it, you know, I, I forgive you, I forgive myself, I give, forgive the whole thing, we can just relax now and have, you know, a normal human-to-human -human contact. She could not, because she was not, you know, I mean, that's my theory. I cannot confirm, confirm it because she is no longer with me, you know. Not she died uh, ten years ago, but um, I tried to get it out of her, and she never shared it with me because I wanted to know why are you holding on to this misery? Because she was miserable, you know. But that's um, if you cannot forgive yourself. I think for many people, these so-called sufferings and miseries are also their property. They're like you know their wealth, and uh, they. They feel that if they let go of this, they'll be poor. Because for them, it's their wealth. Yeah, <laughs> it is their uh, what do you call, like valuable yeah, they, they, they property. They identify with that. Yeah. And they have placed it in such, in such a package around them so that everybody around them responds to that. Yeah. So they identify that's 
who I am. So then, as we was I was asking you, so when and where did you started discovering this, the voice within which was becoming your teacher in a way? You know, very close after I took that inventory of not believing adults any longer, I had the same uh, nightmare again. And that nightmare, uh, usually I was I would sweat through two shirts a night, every night. And that same evening after that inventory or very close to that, I had the same dream again, but this time it, it wasn't a nightmare anymore. It was something that I it liberated me in a way that I that I loved so so much. It was just so amazing that the amount of liberation that I experienced in that dream at that moment. And from there on, I loved that dream. And the more I loved it, the more it disappeared. And now only once in a great, great, great while I have the same dream again. And from there on, I could tell that I felt connected to something, almost like guided, if you will, but with, without having the understanding or the consciousness of, ah, oh, okay, something greater than me is guiding me now, that I didn't have the, those ideas or these thoughts in me. But it was more a feeling that it was just I was taken care of now, you know. Later on in life, of course, I was able to verbalize more and more and more what this is and, and, and try it and, and try it out until I came up with my own little uh, story on what that is. You want me to tell you what it is? <laughs> it, is um, it came from a neuroscience, like an experiment that was taken, you know, that I was like, I was not part of it, but I, I, I uh, read about it and it fascinated me when they uh, measured brain waves with memory. And what they found out is that the, the further back you go in your memory, the less brain activity there is. So in other words, you know, you think of like, what did we just drink? You would say, chai. chai. If you would be hooked up to an EEG machine, you know, you would, have, you would say brain activity right now because you were thinking about when I ask you, what did we drink? So if I were to now ask you, you're still hooked up to the same EEG machine, what was um, the color of your first bicycle? Something that you have to, you would say, first bicycle? Black. So you go further back in your memory for this, but you would have less brain activity according when you're hooked up on the EEG. And that baffled the scientists. So... I don't remember where I heard it or if I came up with this, uh, but I have now a, a picture in my mind that every single person has an antenna, an antenna that goes from your um, physical body through your spiritual body into the, to God, if you will, or to the universal intelligence or whatever, whatever you wish to call that all-knowing all realm. And that antenna is unique. You have your antenna and you can receive certain information through that antenna without friction. It's just your gift, your, your, um, your passions. Um, for other things, you really have to work to get it. Mm -hmm. And if you begin to open yourself up, let's say, to um, uh, mathematics, let's say, you would have to study mathematics. And that is like you begin to polish that antenna 
because the antenna goes into a realm where all information, past, present, and future, is available to us. Anything that we can ever experience is available there. And your antenna can naturally receive certain things, and other things you would have to work on it. But it's not that you have to learn. You're not learning it. All you're doing is you're removing the obstacles within your antenna so that you can receive that information freely from that, from that field. But um, for me, that is so clear. It, it actually explains also um, spontaneous healing, by the way. Healing happens when uh, there's no more friction between your spiritual body, your emotional and your mental body, and your physical body. So your physical body is nothing other than a manifestation of your mental emotional body, which I, by the way, call the memotional body. Mm-hmm. Kind of a new name, a new word that I like to create to condense information. So it's if there's no friction within the memotional body, then the spiritual self where everything is frictionless and perfect can actually manifest in the physical body without friction. But if you have emotional and mental issues, you know, then there's friction in the expression of your spiritual self in your physical body. And that is that manifested symptoms or disease. Or all that. Recently, I was reading and what I discovered was that, like, you know, we have so many deities. Like you see, this room has a picture of deities. So it is said that all these energies are existing in a parallel existence at the same time. You just have to invoke the right energy through the right channels or the right tools and then they're present and they're available to you for whatever purpose is needed. Uh, My next question is that can tough life experiences make us grow instead of bringing us to darker, lower planes? In which way were you able to be pushed out of the whirlpool of the unsensitive and harsh social, family and education system from Switzerland? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, that's a, it's a loaded question. Um, so can, can, um, can dr- trauma make you stronger or can... Yeah, can tough life experiences you think yeah. can make people grow? Yeah. Or they make it more fall on the lower planes. Yeah. Yes. They can. <laughs> both. <laughs> and yeah, both. Well, it's both. It's it depends uh, which route you take. Exactly. <laughs> so yes. So tough situation you know, there's the sayings like whatever what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It's true in some way. Premature degenerations within the body begin with something that that confuses the system. Something is confusing the system. The system cannot or the body cannot respond the way it is designed to do. So there's value in suffering. So you, you, you end up feeling that your body or something within you is not right. And as a result of that, you begin to, uh, to search for the answer. So without suffering, you wouldn't move to find out the answer to your suffering. Can we grow within our circle of comfort? That's, that's the question that needs to be answered because people are obsessed. Here in Switzerland, 
people are obsessed. It's not they like it. No, they're obsessed with their circle of comfort. As long as they're comfortable, everything is fine. As soon as you begin to, to open that up and take them out a, 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 a little bit, a millimeter out of your, their circle of comfort, they give themselves a green light, yeah, a green light to expose their neurosis and their psychosis and, and their anger and their frustration and become aggressive. They're very aggressive when you take people out of their circle of comfort. Only out of the circle of comfort can you grow, period. Inside the circle of comfort, you will stagnate. Do yours, yours, you're stagnant. You will not grow. You will be comfortable, but you will not grow. And to me, that is a fact. So it doesn't mean that you have to be uncomfortable. But uh, what I'm saying is understand the circle of comfort and then uh, move out. Move away from that. Do something that is uncomfortable and understand uh, nothing can happen to you. Yeah, I think also because when we remain in that comfort zone, many things remain unchallenged and uh, unquestioned also. So we want to maintain that status quo, the psychological status quo, physical also. But yeah, the and there is nothing also. wrong with this circle of comfort. But uh, the question is, can you grow there or can, I, can being outside the circle of comfort actually be something positive? And the answer is absolutely yes. Is it comfortable? No, not really. But, um, you know, it's like um, you can go into your own childhood, you know. I don't know. I can go into my childhood and, and uh, realize it was not comfortable what I went through there, for sure. And I don't wish it on any child. But, but it gave me the nightmare. It gave me the, the, the answer to a lot of things. And then the nightmare turned into a, a beautiful dream. It It's polished it made me polish my antenna as a child already without mm. me knowing it and i uh, was connected into a realm of understanding where anything was possible it took me a while to understand it and to be able to guide it but in the end i was able to access that realm of knowledge nearly just by asking a question and going to sleep and i was dreaming about it and I got answers to things that were so incredible and so unbelievable that I rarely share it because it's just, it sounds so bizarre that that exists, but it does exist. So that's why my future work is all about sleeping, dreaming, and healing and understanding the different realms there and begin to become proactive in that realm in, in those realms so understand what sleeping means understand what dreaming means understand what healing means all these different things are should be second nature to us but it's not taught because you know you can make a lot of money with that you yeah. know? <laughs> it's a it's not that good of a business model you yeah. know it will put a lot of industries out of business <laughs> and, and that's for sure that is for sure yeah absolutely because of all the people that I had as my patients back then, I had a he, a he and, and big air quotations now, big air quotations, healing at a healing rate of 100%. People, every single person got better. That went along with the program, of course. And the program was nothing other than follow the laws of nature. Understand the laws of nature, follow them. 
humbly follow them. Yes, the politicians won't like that. No, no, no. The church won't like that. <laughs> because then you right. lose the control over that the, person. That's so true. Yeah. yeah. Because the answers, there's this beautiful, um, the beautiful story that um, always shows up. And that is, um, we have all the knowledge. We have a pure antenna into those Akashic records, into the morphogenetic field, into the where all the information um, of humanity is available to us. You know, it's like, an, and as a, a newborn, as an embryo, if you will, we have a perfect antenna, unadulterated. You know, it's not, um, it's perfect. We have all the knowledge of humanity within us before we are born. And then an angel comes down and places a finger over the embryos, the baby's mouth, and tells it, don't speak about all of it. And that is why you have an indentation just below the lip, in the center of the upper lip, between the nose and the upper lip, there's this little indentation. That is the fingerprint or the, 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 the mark the angel left on your, on your mouth when he put the finger over your mouth and said, don't speak about all of that. So when, of course, I heard this story told a lot more elegant than I just told it, but I found it to be beautiful. It's a beautiful thing because it's true. I think we are pure. We are a pure, pure consciousness, made physical, and all the more friction can be created within you, the more you're malleable, the more you are able to be controlled and manipulated. And the less friction, the, the healthier you are, the clearer you are in your mind, the better your right and your left brain can communicate with one another. And the more your pineal gland is actually clean and able to connect into through our spiritual existence into this morphogenetic field, the less you can be bullshitted, the less they can uh, manipulate you. It's just clear and beautiful. And we can actually move and migrate back to that state. We can actually cleanse the body, cleanse the mind, and uh, experience a little more harmony, for sure. You are from the West. I am from the East, having grown up in completely different cultures. Here, a little more rigid. In India, a little more flexible and flowing. But we are both in the path and looking towards the same direction. Where, as you just said, consciousness is a common denominator. What do you think can be the connection between the East and the West in a spiritual path or in a path of a growth of an individual? Well, it's, um, I think it's an innate, an innate understanding that we all carry within us, that we are on, at, on one level, we are all one. We all know that to be true. Mm. We can be cynical about it. But after everything is said and done, we know that we are spiritual beings having a physical experience. We are so focused on the physical body that and there's so much friction in it, in the memo, in physical and the emotional body, that we often forget that we are all brothers and sisters 
of the same species. Mm. I was, I, my entire emotional unfolding, if you will, happened in America for me. I can say that for sure. The, the, the foundation was laid in a very rigid culture of Switzerland, but my unfolding I did in, um, in America. So I have a, a, like, I have a, a unique comparison of two Western worlds, America and Switzerland. Hmm. And I realize that the programming that is happening within the school system from very early on is very similar and it's moving um, energy from one side of the brain or from both sides of the brain to toward one side. We have a one-sided educational system. The whole programming system from a young age on upward is very lopsided. And I think, you know, that's one of the reasons why Europe is more rigid than India not that you have not also programming going on there, but I have a feeling it's it's less lopsided. It's a little more playful, a little more colorful. And you see this, you can always see it in children. Hmm. You look at children. You know, <laughs> I, I, I love children and I just finished a children's book here in German. You know, it's my first German publication, if you will. And... Uh, I love to see or chat with children to see if they still have that childlike, innocent humor. And as soon as a child loses that, you know the programming has has um, taken a hold mm. of that psyche. There's, there's friction. You can sense it. You can sense that there is friction. There's something not natural about this whole thing you know and i have a sense that that may be a little different here in in india so that's one Mm. one big because the first seven years of of humanity is uh for programming one of the most well it's the most important that's why the um the jesuits the jesuit order of the catholic church you know has a saying give me a boy for the first seven years of his life, and I'll show you the man. There is something to that very early on in life. And I think, you know, during the first seven years, there is um, a lot of things are going (laughs) seriously wrong within this country. Mm -hmm. Because children have to get up way too early. They are just, uh, I mean, it's terrible, terrible for the human psyche. And we have neuroscientifically, it is proven that the human brain is not really up to taking on new information until about 9 o'clock in the morning, 9 to 10 o'clock in the morning. And here, children get up at what? 6? And have to be in school by like 8 or something? It's way too early. Or even earlier, you know? Mm. It's way too much, way too early. And, and we, know, we know that. Scientifically, we know that that is not the way to go. And why is, this, is it still being done in one of the richest countries in the world with the, all the resources we have here? Other than exhausting the brain and diverting you away from the love and the beauty of learning. You know, most children, when they're in when they're school, they, 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 they have a hard time learning. People who are done with schools, like you know, a good friend of mine, I know for a fact, 
His entire adult life, he has not read one book in his entire adult life. <laughs> and that has mainly to do because we, I'm out of school, done. I'm done school stuff, you know. Why is that? Mm. Why don't we learn to love to learn? It's that's one thing that... And again, I, I was very, very lucky because during the, my time here, during that programming time, part of the programming, I did, just didn't, didn't go along. I didn't. Didn't didn't go along. Didn't didn't participate. And maybe that saved me from other things. I don't know. What can you advise to a person in pain who is hopeless, seeing the current world's manipulations, yeah. with such a few awakened people? What to do when one feels isolated, or alone, or not seeing? any way out well there's two two thing two ways of going about answering any of any of these questions one is comfort give comfort or tell the truth the truth is what i love to share and the truth is that you're alone you're alone anything you know, to be part of a, a group or to to be taken care of by um, a family or something it's an illusion in the end, you're alone. So I, I do something that is called circle work. Circle work is very simply explained. It's the first circle that is you. Make sure you're okay in there. Do anything and everything that to, to be okay in that first circle. The second circle, and we go back and we come back to the first circle because that's that's paramount in this for this question. Second circle is your partner. The third circle are your children. Then the fourth circle is the extended family, the family, the rest of the family, and then the friends, and then the government, la 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 la. Right? These are circles going outward. You can add as many as you wish. The most important one is the first circle. In that circle, nobody talks to you. Nobody uh, watches you. Nobody argues with you. There is nothing other than you. Only you. Once you understand that, that that exists, it becomes frightening first. I've heard it to be, you know, people have said that to me. Because they never really thought about it. Because they have always oriented themselves and outside of themselves. You know, if, if I can have people happy around me, then I'm happy. But they never really take care of their first circle. So first circle is the most important thing. So if you have fear, figure out why are you fearful? What are you fearful about? You in your first circle, nobody talks to you there. Nobody answers questions for you. You cannot ask a question. You have to now answer what you feel. So if you feel fearful, find out where that fear comes from. If you're angry, find out what that, where, that, where that anger comes from. If you're insecure, go find out where that insecurity came from. So let's take one of them. Let's take, take anger, fear, or insecurity. So you're insecure, let's say. Uh, ask yourself, why are you insecure? What is that? What is that insecurity? Where, where is it stemming from? And then you go back in time in your memory. Remember, you're in the first circle. Nobody talks to you. You're on your own. Only you have your memories. 
So you go back to the last moment when you can remember to be insecure. That could be in a setting where somebody asks you a question. You didn't, you should know the answer, but you didn't. And you're insecure. Oh my God, I should know. Whatever. doesn't make a difference what it is. You go back to the last moment where you can remember, all right, that's when I was fearful or or, um, insecure. And then you ask the next question. You begin to ask questions. Was that insecurity justified or not? Was it an imagination? Was I just thinking, oh, I should know that? But no, 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 I cannot know this because I don't know what he knows, you know. And as soon as you begin to do that little dance, you begin to ask questions about that which you feel that, you know, inside of you, you begin to realize that the charge, the energetic charge of that insecurity begins to dissipate. It begins to change. Right? So if it's a person that said, well, I know you were whatever and, and insulted you. And as a result of that, all these feelings came out that you're inadequate, that you don't have, you should know more and blah, blah. You put that person in the center of your attention and ask yourself, what this person did to me, is that to help me grow or is it to manipulate me and push me down? And if it's the second, then you know he, he or she is wrong and you can move away from that. You judge him. You judge him right away. You judge the situation. As is this situation, was it there to help me grow or was it there to you know, subjugate me? And if it's the first, help me grow, well, look at that. Then you may have made a mistake and say, oh, okay, good. So I now know what not to do in the future. So you're step one, one step closer toward understanding more about that particular situation. So it doesn't matter what happens to you. You're alone. That's the truth. You know, I mean, comforting would be is like, don't worry about it. Everything is on the direction of a divine guidance. And you can go there, that route. I moved away from that new agey energy, if you will. I could go there, but it's, it's, it's boring to me. It's very boring. Very confusing. Yeah, you're alone. You're alone. Be, be okay with that. And go to the first circle and say, why are, you, why are you not okay there? And begin to work there. Don't invite anybody in because nobody can come in. They're on the second, third, fourth, or whatever circle. They have nothing to say in that first circuit. You're alone. You can say, you can swear, you can, you can dance, you can stomp, you can do whatever you want. And nobody hears you, nobody sees you. You is you. That's it. Also, I think uh, for many people, being alone is seen negative. But they don't understand the difference between lonely and alone. Yeah. Loneliness versus aloneness. Aloneness is a virtue, while loneliness is this negative thing. So people don't distinguish between these two words. In India, we have a very clear and a very beautiful word for alone. Aloneness is, we call it ekant. Ekant is actually two words, ek, ant. Ek means one, ant means end. End of even the one is ekant. And when you touch that space, you are even you are not even one, you are just 
Yeah. One with the yeah. universe or one yeah, with yeah. everything. And that is a beautiful it, place to be. Yeah, it's, it's perfect. Because, you know, that's the, the, the programming is, if you're alone, you're lonely. No, 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 wait, wait. Watch yourself in a mirror. Do that little dance. Watch your eyes in the mirror. Look into your eyes in the mirror. Not quick. Do that for like five minutes. If you do five minutes, it feels like it's 15 minutes. But do it for five minutes. Look into your eyes. And don't tell me what you see in your iris. And if you don't see the stardust, <laughs> like burst of, of, a, uh, of a star in there, then you're not looking. Because this circle work, you know, to, to, to get to know yourself in that first circle, that is very, very odd because nobody teaches you that. Especially here in this, in these, in these um, countries here. Yeah, do that. Do that work. That's the most... And you do it for yourself. It's the best investment that you can ever do. Yeah. You can never lose. Yeah, the, the whole setup of society and education does not teach anybody how to be alone. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. And it's... If one can be really taught that, or if one can really learn that, then everything what will happen out of that space will be simply incredible. Absolutely. Yeah. It won't mm. happen out of need of, you know, filling this vacuum. Yeah. Well, you can only be a, a, a good partner to somebody if you are in your first circle, you're congruent, you're good. But most people try to uh, go to the partner to get, you know, mm. the energy to be okay. It never works. It will never work. It has never worked. And if you go back into uh, your own history and you look at all the people that you know, you know certain things simply do not work. And that's one of the things that I must say that I had. That was probably my first guidance that was so clear. My, um, I had a, a gift of observation. I observed every little bit of thing that happened around me. And... When I realized and I observed something that clearly didn't work, I looked at it and as it clearly doesn't work. I, for whatever reason, had a very strong feeling. It was like it was almost like cemented inside of me that that will not be a part that I will duplicate. I will not try that, which is so clearly not working. So people say often, it's like, well, he has to make his own mistakes. Like, well, really, really. Maybe he needs a mentor that helps him to give him, you know, maybe a, a slap across the butt when he does something dumb and uh, just um, guides him into a new direction that is more, more productive for that human being, you know. And a mentor or a guru would know that. They know that because they are hooked into something that we are not yet. You know? Also, sometimes a guru is someone who has traveled the same path. Made the same mistakes, you know, stumbled, f fell down, maybe took a wrong route, oh, yeah. but eventually reached. So then that teacher or that mentor or a guru is compassionate enough to travel with you the same path, give you the tips, but you have to travel. <laughs> he cannot travel on your behalf. You have to go through that, but maybe follow the tips possibly avoid all those obstacles yeah. 
So in, in these developed developed countries, I love that. Such a an oxymoron, essentially. The programming is such that you know, you know what is best for you. And uh, that's uh, that's often a pitfall. That's often is not not the case because um, we simply cannot know it all. There is a, um, a distinction in German, really, which which I find really really good, and that is kennen und können. Kennen means you know about something, and können means you own it to a point where you can actually uh, execute it. You can you can you can work the, you can work it. And many people they know a lot here, but the, the, all this knowledge is not necessarily connected properly so that it becomes a part of their foundation it's just knowledge they have so knowledge is power everybody knows that right i completely disagree with that in my world only applicable knowledge is power things that you can you can use other than that you know knowledge can also confuse you and that's what I find a lot around me. Part of the human suffering is confusion. They have too much information in them. So it's called, there's, there's a term that should go through Western civilization like a wildfire to a point where everybody knows everything about this one term. And that is solipsism. Solipsism is... Uh, an idea that my world is right. And since my world is right, yours must be wrong. And there is no you know, bridge possible for a bridge for a dialogue or, or a compromise or a conver conversation. No, no conversation. And this solipsism is rampant. You know, and that is one of the reasons why people turn in and stay in their circle of comfort. And as soon as you challenge that or you, or you begin to teach them the word, the definition, the real definition of the word solipsism or what I find a lot here is like, uh, it's called infantile solipsism. You get, you get opposition like you have never, you, have, you actually come face to face with solipsism. Because their world is right. And as a result of that, mine, even though I want to help you out of your misery, back into this first circle where you can completely, in, in complete honesty, you can actually have a conversation with yourself. I want to achieve that with you or for you. Solipsism will hinder you from that. You know, it will divert you, it will confuse the issue. So in the same context, regarding the, if I may use the word, evil way, the society influences children and blind ones. And the way basic human freedom is challenged in so many different ways. From the moment we put a foot in the school, is there a way to help those who blindly believe in the system and became a victim of it? Well, you know, I, first I would, I would personally like to not call those ways evil. Because if you look at the, um, the symbol of yin and yang, there is a light 
version uh, with a dark dot and a dark version with a light dot and it all is in perfect balance the light cannot exist without the dark or the dark can is just a part of the whole spectrum if you will so these are the, the, the saying that always got me was it's better to light a candle and curse the darkness right so what, what that really means to me is these evil ways, these, these um, programmings that really confuse our nature into believing that you are not a spiritual being or this is not the Garden of Eden, this is not paradise where we live here. But paradise will, uh, you will achieve if you are a good uh, person throughout the life. And then once you die, you go to the paradise. You know, that whole chestnut, right? All of that, all that programming that gets us away from understanding and, and, and realizing that this is the Garden of Eden. This is paradise here. It's just like certain things program other things for us not to be able to experience that paradise. It's just part of yin and yang. It's just part of the thing. And now it's a matter of focus. So where to focus is way more important than to point the finger at how bad it is or how good it could be. That's not, not very important. It's important that we, we understand that this is a spectrum. Yin and yang, the picture, is a, that's the entire spectrum. And now... Are we living in dark times right now, negative times? Well, yeah, it's really weird and strange and whatever, but that's just part of the whole spectrum. I will die with a smile on my face, and I don't care what anybody says. You know, sometimes I want, a long time ago I was asked, why are you doing this work, helping people from, get out of pain, get back healthy and all that? And I really never thought about that before. But when I thought it, and I first thing that popped in my mind is like, to, so that we are able to die clean, as clean as possible, so that my, the spirit, the energetic force that animates this shell that that I have, that was given to me, was given to me as a gift, that my spirit can actually exit this physical shell with the least amount of friction, disease, and and sickness holds this energy to the body and that's in, in my world that's all fear driven fear of death and once you uh, begin the work of the circle work essentially and a little uh, other modalities that i have created around me you know to 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 understand what life and what death is and and what all that stuff in between it's all about energy it's all about energy so it's the same thing with um, understanding, realizing, witnessing, observing, feeling these dark forces that are at work right now. And they, and they are. It's, there's no doubt in my mind. It's really happening. But on the same token, you know, that's just an, it's just an expression of fear. So these are fearful human beings who have organize their realms to a point where they feel less fear of dying. <laughs> so we just have to understand that that's part of the whole spectrum and accept it for what it is, work against it as you wish. If you feel like you have to change 
something about the school system, well then, do your part. You know, you can convince yourself that you're alone and there's no way that you can be able to, uh, you know, create change and all that. Well, that's part of the programming. Well, if that's how you want to deal with yourself, then uh, you will not be happy. Understand that the smallest thing holds back the greatest force. A sand a pebble, a sand corn, a sand, what do you call it, a piece of sand, a speck of sand accumulated holds back the oceans. So, yeah, you know, it always reminds me of my one of my um, professors who at the time that I was in the university, I was a very, very serious student, very serious. I mean, did I say very? I did say very. Right? I was a very serious student. I really wanted to know. At one point, one of my teachers, a professor, pulled me aside and because I was always in office hours. I was, was together with the professors. I wanted to know as much as they were. And uh, he asked me, um, uh, or he was telling me about um, what a good student I am. But Bruno, understand that you can go on like this for the rest of your life and you're on your deathbed and you look back at all your things that you know and in the end, all you know is one grain of sand on a beach. That's all you will have. So he, went, he said, just relax a little bit. <laughs> so he was one of my mentors, which is true. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. So, uh, yeah, relax. Yeah. Uh, in your book, Hashashin, which I would personally recommend all the listeners of this podcast to read. It's a wonderful book. In the book, Hasashin, you got inspired in the story of your father for the main character, and you also dedicated the book to him. How was the relationship to your father and how it has marked your life, how he played a role in your inner growth in the place where you are now? I had pretty much no relationship with my father. The entire time that I was able to clearly think, he was always drunk. He was an alcoholic, heavy, heavy alcoholic. And uh, he was um, physically abusive, intensely physically abusive. I mean, I was beaten by him every day, especially from the age of six on to about now, seven on to about 10. That was like the, the, the most physically abusive uh, time. After that, I mean, my parents got divorced. He left, so that stopped. So, But I had uh, not a very, you know, loving relationship with him. But I, when I did this inventory thing, you know, uh, I think it was like seven or close to eight years old, I... Um, realized that my father was very unhappy so that this drinking you know he drank rum a lot of rum and i could sense the uh, the, the level of inebriation at sort of like when you smell the vapor of rum in the air i already knew and i, I actually that's the only thing that i included into this um the first chapter in um Hashashin is the only time that I actually created something autobiographical and then put it into a story. 
it was um, not fun, let's say that. To say it was not fun. Then he took his life. He took his own life. So um, I didn't have a relationship. I couldn't talk to him. I couldn't ask questions, which gave me an opportunity. An opportunity that now I created my the focus again. I could focus on, oh my God, he beat me. He was a terrible father. He never talked to me. He never la la la. I could do that. I can keep that focus, but then I wouldn't be true to my teachings, my own my own guidance, if you will, because that's uh, not necessarily my creation. It was I was really pushed to do that or to live that. The focus was then I created a fictional father. And this fictional father was uh, a great a great guy who went through experiences and on a downward spiral because he was very sensitive he ended up um, um, choosing a life of inebriation and as a result of that you know he had he had demons that took over and did what he what he did to me but in essence you know his real uh, true um, spirit if you will. He was a good man, and I know that for sure, because my aunts, his sisters, when they talked about him, they always talked about him as being a very nice man, very loving, very caring, things that I never experienced. So, of course, there is a story between my father and my mother, but once I learned that, I go, well, you know, there is, yeah, I can see that somebody that has an affinity toward alcohol that he would, you know, just numb himself with that drug. I never understood that because I never was drunk in my life. But uh, I can see that. So I just changed changed the attitude toward who my father could have been if he would have chosen a different path in his life. I know he was not a bad man, for sure. But he was just tortured. In so many ways. So I dedicated this story to my father because I um, made peace with him. I made peace with the disappointment that I carried within me as a child, a fatherless child, if you will. But I was just, from again, from seven on, I was connected to something greater than a father. I was, you know, connected to the great father, if you will. Mm-hmm. So this masculine energy that guided me is um yeah is is as cool as the coolest dad if you will without being a physical father i would have loved to be as a child i'm sure i would have loved to be held by a, a masculine figure that's something that i never was able to experience it's not that i had later on the uh, the desire to be held by a masculine figure that that just that's where the, the first circle work came in. I think I was so cool and so clear in my first circle that I was fine with myself. You know, so I didn't need anything anymore. But so I could make peace with my father. With my mother, I haven't made peace yet. Not yet. I'm intellectually I've made peace. But on a on a on a deeper level, there are open questions that I am in the process of answering because I'm talking to other women, I'm talking to the feminine realm about these things. And as soon as I get a satisfactory answer to those questions that just make it make it plausible, make it for me, for my intellect, it needs to be, you know, I need to be able to put a check mark behind these open questions. 
then I can dedicate a book to my mother. But I will not do it until then. Otherwise, I would be fairly angry. And my second book, Bells, you know, carries a little bit of that anger inside of. Because, I, you know, I kind of like weave in the, the, the female psyche and the solipsism is, is I put a, my finger, my writer's finger into the open wound of solipsism in the book, in that book, especially parts of that book. The arc of the main character then, of course, is uh, he will begin to understand, you know, that this, all of it is a gift, you know. But um, there is a lot of anger, Ang- or n- not anger, let's say, let's, let's, let's uh, delete that. It's righteous indignation. That's what that is. It's, there's a lot of righteous indignation in the book from the point of view of a, ma- of a hurt male. Which is very uh, is very cool. I love that story. I read the first uh, chapter, you know, out loud today, f- just because I just finished the book and I just and I started reading it and I almost naturally started like coming out out loud. I started reading in silence and all of a sudden I was I caught myself. I'm reading out loud. Mm-hmm. I love it. Feels almost a little weird to say this about my own writing, but. There is just so much stuff, so much dense information packaged inside of that book that has to do with relationship between male and female, men and women in the Western world. That is just, I'm I'm crossing my fingers in a big way that the rest of the story will uh, elicit interest in humanity, you know, because it's just, uh, I know there's, there's pockets in there is so important to healing Healing has to take place between the masculine and the feminine, and we have to do it. It's not going to be taught to us. We have to do it from the bottom up. So this is my personal contribution to, um, to put the finger in an open wound, not to make it worse, but to point it out, come on, let's, let's do this. Let's figure out how we can balance the masculine the feminine male and female, so we can all be co-creators in something that I call alchemy. We have to create alchemy again. And that is only, that's essentially depicted in the yin and yang symbol. To understand all of this there, now where do you want to focus? You want to focus on the old in the past? Or do you want to focus on the future? Anxiety? <laughs> past is depression, future is anxiety. Focus on, the, on, on your circle in this moment. That's the only thing you really got. And from there you go to the next circle. And from there you go to the next circle. And all of a sudden you, you're able to actually create a community, a healthy community. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine that. Everybody is in, okay in the first circle. Just fine. And then the second circle. And then the third. Yeah, unbelievable. That, I mean, the ripple effect of this would be the revolution that we all kind of like hope somebody will start. Come on, get like get going. But it will have to start in this living room right now. Maybe that's the start. I don't know. Or you know, just hook up all these people that already have so much to give. You know? So finally coming to the end of this wonderful conversation with Bruno, can you tell us briefly how the latest book happened and what is the main message in it it happened um while i was practicing i had uh, a moment where i uh, i watched my nephews and at night you tell them a little story 
you know, and there are two of them. And the one was all about the story. You wanted to know everything about the, the, the good night story. And, and the second one was more like, you know, la, la, la. You know, it was just like, uh, he just loved the fact that I was there and he was holding my hand and hanging loose, you know. So I realized these are two totally different human beings here in little tiny forms, right, still. So once I left, I went home and I thought to myself, what facts, what things, what stories, what metaphors, what, what theme would, ha would a, um, a children's book have to be in order to elicit something very positive within a human, little human and a child? To open up the speech centers to to to, to, to creativity, everything you know, all these different possibilities. So I, back when I was really into the scientific neurology and, and the neurological correct way of things, and so I wrote out like uh, all these points on what would have to be in a children's book for the intellect that I was carrying back then. And then I took that list and I put it in a file that I had and I still have. It's called Someday Maybe. So it's a file. Someday maybe I will take this outline here and write a children's book, maybe. And I have hundreds of ideas and thoughts and all that in that file. I would strongly suggest that anybody carries a file somewhere in their house, you know, someday maybe. You have an idea, you write it down, you go in there, and periodically you go through this file to see if you want to take on a news project. Weeks later, days later, weeks later, I had a dream that I had to write down. And I just recently found the original document, which is longhand. I've written it in longhand. I had to write this dream down before I could sleep again. It was a fairly large dream. I mean, it's a very, a lot of information in there. So... Uh, I think it was like close to 40 hours I wrote on that. And then I could sleep again. So, and that is that book. Ein Hemd allein fliegt in Richtung Wolkenwelt. Back when I already published it, it was published for me by, my, by a good friend of mine. And it found its way into the school system. And it had some really wonderful effects on the children that uh, were exposed to that story. It was great. It was just a, a beautiful experience. Now I took it. In the meantime, I've learned a little bit more about writing and became a writer. And um, back when I didn't write anything, you know, and uh, I I just revamped the book, got a, a great editor, and we worked on it. And uh, and now it is a new project that is um, before it was good to really good for me and now I would say it's great I mean it's a beautiful story it was given to me and now it's packaged near perfect even the uh, the front cover is is designed so that the child can actually create its own front cover for the book there's a, a white space where they can draw and it's just a, a very uh, uh, yeah it was a it's a long way to get here, but uh, now it's here. Now it's here. Well, uh, there are so many areas which we can continue discussing with Bruno where he can bring light to various areas of human development, I would say. The development of understanding consciousness.
but uh, thank you so much bruno for sharing the gems of your own personal journey and uh, i hope that uh, the listeners can connect with some of these pearls to bring more light light as in light and light as in lightness <laughs> both way in their lives and uh, make the journey of life smoother simpler unserious and celebrative thank you so much bruno for now oh, well thank you for having me thank you it was a pleasure alam ramasmi